Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? We are the love children. <laughs> the, yes. I don't know what that even means. Uh, that's a way to start off this podcast, because this movie's about love. Kind for, of. For a time. Uh, so welcome back to the Wages of Cinema, everyone. It's been a little while, but we are back, and uh, we're happy that you're listening to us on any whatever streaming uh, podcast thing you've got out there in podcast land. Hello. I'm waving. You can't see me, you idiot. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I'm always with Jack, and always with me is... Wifely duty, Corey. Yes, and our duty uh, last night was seeing Once Upon a Time in... Dot, 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 Hollywood. <laughs> Why did you do the Donald Trump voice for dot, dot, I don't dot. know. Uh, well, that's Stephen Colbert doing Donald Trump. Whenever he reads his tweets, he always reads that, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> it's always it always works. Um, no, the, the dot 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 is part of the title apparently. All right. All right. So anyway, um, we saw this movie. Um, I didn't. I wanted to kind of just talk, think about it for um a day uh, before I podcasted about it because uh, I thought rushing into it might be a little bit much. Um, and uh, you know, it's. It's what you get. It's Quentin Tarantino, man. It, but I think by now, nine movies in, you should know if you are going to like what you're going to like. Um, and I'm a fan of this movie. However. I'm not really. Uh, yes, there is dissension in our home. I our know. marriage has been torn asunder. We aren't talking to one <laughs> another as Corey is basically like me as we do this review. Yes. Um, no, I I think that when we talk about the things with this movie that um, that we don't quite agree on, I I will uh, you'll see me saying th- I will be. Let me put it this way: I'm not going to be yelling and trying to scream or something like we're not going to get into a row about it. I don't, we don't do those kind of reviews on this kind of podcast. We're not into hot takes. We're into hugs. We're into hug takes, yeah. <laughs> We're into hug takes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But to just give you a brief rundown of the, well, I'm going to say story. I know you're going to give me a side eye roll as I try to do that, but let me at least. There is no story. All right, shut up. <laughs> Maybe we will get into a row before I even talk what this movie's about, damn you. Okay, what this movie's about, we're set in early 1969, and we are getting... um, The movie largely takes place, at least two-thirds of the movie takes place over two days in February, or like a day, you know, a couple days and a night or two, um, in the lives of an actor and uh, his best friend slash stuntman slash driver slash chauffeur slash basically handyman guy, uh, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. And of course that's Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Uh, And basically Rick Dalton is uh, somebody who was on a TV show for a lot of years. One of those old time cowboy shows that, you are not. You and I have never watched Bounty Law. Yeah, Bounty Law is what it's called. I think it is kind of inspired by an actual cowboy show that used yes. to be on. Yes, it is. Um, My I'm, father told me what it was when I talked to him today, but I forgot. Yeah, I'm sure. It, well, also the other thing I found, I, I guess I had heard this, but then I forgot it, and then I was reminded of it today that the the. As the tagline would say in, um, you know, for the poster for Green Book, this movie based on a true friendship. (laughs) And the true friendship in this case 
was Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham. And Hal Needham, who you may know his name because he pretty famous stuntman, also directed uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Um, he and Burt Reynolds were very tight for a lot of years. That's why Hal Needham directed Smokey and the Bandit. And he also directed, I think, the Cannonball Run movies. Okay. You ever seen the Cannonball Run no. movies? They're, they were kind of like, just throw a bunch of actors in a movie together. Are and... they full of literal cannonballs? I th- well, I don't know if they're cannonballs. I know there's a run for something. I I might have even seen one of the movies when I was a kid, but I'm getting off track here. The point is, um, so Tarantino actually was kind of working off of something from, I guess, real life, but he's, for the sake of his movie, he's made these characters f- fairly, you know, unto themselves. Rick has kind of a dilemma that he's pa- posed with at the start of the movie, um, he has a, a he's kind of meet, he meets what who might be his new manager Al Pacino has a, a, re, a couple good scenes in this and kind of lays it down for DiCaprio that yeah right now you're just or more than Al Pacino voice you're just <laughs> you're just doing gas shots on shows every week <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not how he sounds now um, but. You know, he has a choice of either keep on doing these kind of, you know, you're just popping up for an episode here, an episode there, or go off to Italy to do some spaghetti westerns, um, because I guess that's a tragedy. Uh, at that time, spaghetti westerns, unless they had Clint Eastwood, they weren't really looked that favorably in Hollywood. Um, and so the, the movie is a kind of day-in-the-life thing. We're seeing... Rick on the set, you know, trying to shoot, act in his, uh, in this episode of the show. Cliff Booth is going around doing errands and happens to pick up a hitchhiker. Yes. And we'll get into that. And then there's also, to a lesser extent, Sharon Tate. Um, by Margot Robbie, who's, lives, who has just moved in next door to Rick. So it's not just they're throwing him, they're throwing her in there for whatever. It's, they, they try to make that work although for reasons we'll get into when we get into spoilers there's not really that much interaction between rick and sharon uh until a certain point um yeah so that's kind of what we're seeing happen in the movie there's i will admit there isn't the kind of here is the real like meat of the story like in django you could say Freed slave uh, goes with bounty hunter to save his wife from plantation owner, glorious bastards. Well, that that movie has a bunch of stories, but basically, let's kill Hitler. <laughs> um, uh, so I will freely admit that I I don't the usual firm story isn't here, but I think that the story is really just more about seeing how these two guys are trying to deal with life as they are kind of facing irrelevancy. You know, they're, they're, even though the industry has always been a bit kinder to white guys as they age with, you know, that doesn't mean all actors are the same. So, yeah. And now the, the other thing to know about this movie is this is not just a love letter to Hollywood. It could be argued that it's um, a gigantic, like, dick-spewing jizz of Hollywood. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I don't know. Well, I was going to say the word masturbatory, but I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, All right. So, we've already, we have talked off mic about this before. We didn't come fresh from the movie, because... Frankly, at the very end, I saw your face, and you looked like someone had, like, stolen your childhood. (laughs) Well, the thing is, even though there are several things about this movie I'm going to praise... Yeah, we should talk... Let's talk about things that we unequivocally Um, praise. The reason why I looked like that is I pretty much uncritically adore every other Tarantino movie. If you're grading movies on a five-star scale, 
before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I wouldn't give any of his movies less than, say, four and a half stars out of five. I've thought every single movie he's made until this one has been, you know, mm. genius and glorious. And mm. so I assumed, given his 100% awesomeness batting average up until now, I would love this movie. And I really mm. didn't love this movie. In fact, while there are things I like about it, ultimately, I don't think it works, oh. and that really bummed me out. Mm. Well, let's talk about the things that we do like before we get into more heavy criticisms. I mean, DiCaprio and Pitt, how, like, the, the, their casting and how they click with what they're given is just stellar. They are, like... Mm top of their games especially Pitt I feel like I haven't seen him be this good in a while now granted I when was the last time we saw Brad Pitt in a movie I don't remember it wasn't World War Z it had to have been something else other than that right I don't remember but I feel like it's been a while and with with DiCaprio man talk about you know like the Revenant is sandwiched between Wolf of Wall Street and this yeah. Talk about, like, the wrong movie died, <laughs> Oscar-wise. <laughs> All right, like, he, like, he basically taps into so much, like, he helps to make, like, Rick into this very, you know, he's basically kind of, like, a petulant, you know, he's he's an actor. He's someone who thinks so highly of himself, even though he, you know, keeps drinking, he's smoking, he's clearly not in great health and he's like in probably one of the great scenes of the movie he gets talked down by a um like an eight-year-old girl yes his pint-sized co-star totally um demolishes him yeah like and i i read uh it's funny briefly before we went to record i was on facebook and i follow uh, paul schrader and he quite liked the movie a lot, but he was saying in the comments that he actually didn't like that scene because oh. he thought that it's an overused trope to have a, you know, a very super articulate child character who dispenses wisdom. I kind of thought that too, even though I was entertained by this. I think that it is a trope, but it worked for me because it wasn't really about like, she was there in a way to help kind of guide along our hero, or, you know, what, what we call, like, a hero as far as... And it also gave Rick a moment to show he has vulnerability, because he, he, in that scene, it's almost actually almost midway through the movie, and he talks about that... He's reading, like, a cowboy book, and he's halfway through the book. So, I guess the parallel there. Yeah. And so, about that. And so, 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 Rick, we're seeing him in his very highs and very lows during this course of the day, where at times he completely flubs lines during this cowboy TV show he's on. I'm forgetting the name of it, but Timothy Oliphant acts opposite him. But then there are times where he, like, what was it the director says to him? Channel evil, sexy Hamlet? Yes. <laughs> So, um, I know I'm giving away a few jokes, but I'm not giving away the really big stuff. Brad Pitt also is cool, but he's, like, deceptively cool. These are two immensely charismatic performances. They're charismatic performances, but I feel like the more I think about it, it's... I think that these two these two guys, these two, you know, Rick and Cliff... They're also kind of dealing with a lot of pain from their past. And I think in subtle ways, I think DiCaprio and Pitt also, they that's why I feel like the characters, I was able to go along with it not having as firm of a plot as other Tarantino movies because I loved them so much. And I know you said you didn't. Well, my thing was... I, my big beef with this movie, if you could summarize it briefly, was that I thought it's totally plotless, but I also felt like it was just 
too unstructured, too aimless. It was basically two guys hanging out for two and a half hours, and... But some of that hangout ends up paying off, like, later, though. And for me, that just wasn't enough to hang a movie on. And while I find the characters fun in the movie, like, I find DiCaprio and Pitt enjoyable, fun characters to watch. And even in her... Sharon Tate, like, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate isn't in the movie quite as much, or at least it doesn't seem like she's there at least substantively enough. She gets a few key moments. Um, I still liked her, too, even though she's... Well, uh, what was it? I think Tarantino in an interview said, she's a presence that floats through the movie. <laughs> Which is my... I, I will say that is a criticism I have. I wanted to have, like, one scene with her just having a conversation with another character to flesh her out a little bit more. Well, basically, there's just not enough meat on the bone of this movie for me. It's very, it's consistently well acted. Visually, it looks spectacular. Yeah, this is, I mean, don't you feel like you are really seeing, like, like, you, you know you're looking at Los Angeles, but it's the Los Angeles of 50 years ago. And it doesn't... If there was CGI, I, I can't so tell where they did So, the cinematography is gorgeous, the set design, the attention to detail. Like, you can tell this was a very lovingly constructed film. The soundtrack is great. The, the drive-in theater where Cliff lives behind... Yeah, but... <laughs> How that is shown is... As I said cool. to you last night, the movie felt to me more like an amazing diorama than an actually consistently engaging film. So it was like, you have all these, like, pretty beads, but no string to, like, hold them together as a necklace. Mm. But what now, going into the movie, let me ask you, because I don't know if I asked this... What did you have any idea of maybe what the story might be going into it based on the trailers or whatever you heard? Well, I did think the Mansons and Sharon Tate would be a bigger part of the film than they were. Because hmm. the other thing for me is structurally, I wish it had been more of an ensemble film instead of a two leads and a bunch of people cameo. But do you? But I don't know. See, to me, I feel like these characters, even though for even though we're not seeing their stories per se, we're not seeing mm. it be like, you know, like when we when we when you watch Magnolia, it's like you're not just watching, you know, to, mm. you're watching almost like ten stories unfold and interweave and stuff, um, or eventually they kind of come together, or maybe they don't, but. Um, I feel like there was something different, though, that he was doing that still worked for me, because the characters that they interact with, I almost felt like, in th thinking about it more, I think that was almost the point. These characters don't have meaningful relationships with other people who they come across with in their lives, and uh, that even goes maybe so for Sharon, too, like... We don't even see her interact much with Roman Polanski. Yeah. And, like, I almost feel like she actually has... There's a brief bit. You pro, I don't know if you remember this. Like, she she picks up a hitchhiker, and I feel like they connect yeah. more than she and Roman Polanski do. Yeah. Which... Um, And I, I don't know. I think that was kind of fascinating to me. And yet, also, I, I still think the actors playing those minor roles were... Were, were quite good, too. Um, so, you know, people like uh, Kurt Russell is, is here. Um, Margaret Qualley has a, gr a really good character as one of the uh, the Manson girls. I forget her name. Um, it... I, I, I don't know. It's... I, I, I actually wasn't as bothered by that as you were. One thing... It I, was a different kind of ensemble movie than you, you than I might have expected, but it still... It, it still felt so lived in, and so, like, all the characters felt so organic to this kind of 1969 that Tarantino was creating that I... 
could still be okay with the fact that a lot of them were, oh, here's this guy, now here's this guy. One thing I think Tarantino does so well in every movie except this one <laughs> is that... Thanks for the qualifier. Um, is that normally I think he does a fantastic job of giving lots of characters lots to chew on. So I assumed, sitting down to this movie... I was going to see, like, seven or eight characters who were just as fun as Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in this movie. I didn't expect that we would spend most of our time with only two characters, and then everyone else just drops in and out for a scene or two. And I do think you make an interesting point about their it, isolation. It, it's, it's also, I'm going to use a pretentious term here, I actually, well, last night I said the movie's evocative yeah. of that era. I also feel like it's it's kind of atmospheric in a way that I'm yeah. not used to with Tarantino movies. Or no, no, I mean, I'm gonna, I mean, he does create like a genuine atmosphere of like the old West and Jang, not old West, but the South and Django, um, you know, World War Two and bastards. But because that atmosphere was so rich for me, it felt like it was be it was about that that mm -hmm. atmosphere, you know, in both the good parts and the bad parts, and you know the mundane stuff that's on TV and all that. That that's why it worked for me. That it felt like he was trying to probe what is this universe that these characters have kind of lost themselves in. If that makes sense. It does. For me, basically, these two characters were not enough to hang a movie on. Mm. Well, yeah, well, okay. Well, that's the other thing I think we just disagree on. I think it was, I had enough fun hanging out with them. And it was weird. Somebody, like, I listened to a couple other critics who said that this is like if you combined Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. That mm. seemed like an odd compare i think the idea is that we're not just following one straight story like in pulp fiction the idea is we're following these separate stories of these mm. characters and eventually they all come together at the end more or less um you know like we don't know much about tim roth and amanda Plummer in pulp fiction except at like the beginning and then they finally come back at the end mm. um in this we're following these three strands each their day in the life for a lot most of the runtime, and I think I was just I guess I was just I was having fun watching their kind of highs and lows over their day, <laughs> but I also think that because it, it does eventually happen, it takes about I will say it takes about an hour for us to actually get to uh, Spawn Ranch, mm. but I think that once that Tarantino does that. It's clear that, okay, here is our threat for the movie. You know, they and maybe the, the threat wasn't, like, pronounced enough for you. Yeah, that's the other thing. You, you, wanted, you basically wanted it to be more of, like, if you're going to use the, the, the Manson girls, they should be in it even more than they are. Because well, I, I don't know. Because I feel like their presence is enough to kind of counter what else we're seeing in the movie. I didn't really feel the tension in the Spawn movie ranch scene. And again, in every single movie except for this one, I think Tarantino is a master of tension building. And I think about all the times he's made me like squirm in my seat and like clutch the armrest. But I just did not feel the tension in the Spawn movie ranch um, scene. Um, I, I don't know. I felt a little tension or, if not, tension might not be the word, but I could feel, like, the horror of it. Um, this was actually something I didn't know until uh, just a, a couple mm -hmm. hours ago. Um, apparently a stuntman actually died at Spod Ranch. Uh, I didn't, I, I guess that's part of the history there. So maybe Tarantino knew that. Like, maybe mm -hmm. some people would know that, like, watching those scenes. So that... Something maybe something could happen to Cliff, but maybe for you, because you know Cliff can handle himself so well, like his backstory. Uh, I don't know if that's. It's, I guess it's not a spoiler. It's kind of early mm -hmm. in the movie they show, but like 
his backstory is that he killed his wife. Yeah. Um, which is actually revealed in a clever way because it's a flashback within a flashback. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's why, because you knew that maybe nothing was going to happen to Cliff while he was there. Yeah, it could be. And I'm not saying I necessarily needed more mansions. I needed more something, though. Like, this movie... See, I felt some... I felt dread when he was on that ranch, because it's... He suddenly is introduced to this whole other mood, like... And the fact that it's an abandoned movie ranch, mm-hmm. that that ties in so well with the the ranch that DiCaprio is on. Like, their day is, you know... It's like an extended episode of Hey Dude, 1969 <laughs> edition for you old school Nickelodeon fans. Um, so yeah, that's why it was enough for me. I was intrigued enough to know like, okay, is he maybe going to... See, I was tense in the sense that like they showed Dakota Fanning plays... Um, Squeaky oh, Frog. Th- thank you. Yeah, she's one of the... Did she go to jail for the Manson murders? Because that name sounds, like, really... That name sticks out. Like, she, I think she was one of the main people. Yeah, I also think she might have tried to assassinate Gerald Ford or something. Oh, my God. I don't remember, though. I should Was it when that. he fell over? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, like, I, I was a little worried. Like, he goes up to this house to try to talk huh? to... Uh, he wants to talk to Ger- to uh, Gerald's Ger- Ger- George Spann, um, even though he's asleep and he has to wake mm-hmm. him up. Um, and I was thinking, like, is he going to die while he's in this house? Once he leaves the house, I didn't worry mm-hmm. for him so much, because then he has, like, a different mode. Um, but I think that scene is also important, too, because it shows that Cliff can really kick someone's ass if he has to. I do think... It shows that he has real violence in him, not just, you know, I can have some kung fu kicks with Bruce Lee. (laughs) That scene is hilarious. The scene with Brad Pitt and Bruce Lee. Yeah, that's not... If you've seen the trailer, you know that at some point he will fight Bruce Lee, and Mike Moe is a total delight as Bruce Lee. Yeah, I do think that that scene is important to the film, but I was just not impressed by it. It's hard to explain. Mm. There's there's nothing glaringly wrong about that scene to me, but it didn't... I wasn't, like, tense. Was I didn't it, feel suspicious. Was it flat? Yeah. And I am re-watching the HBO show Big Love right now, and I've been going crazy. I've been watching the show literally, like, seven or eight hours a day for the past two weeks. And that show has a bunch of scenes set on multiple different polygamist compounds. Yeah. And even a show like Big Love does such a better job of demonstrating, like, understated menace Mm. on these two compounds. And like with the Manson girls, most of the characters are just kind of dirty and mangy and pathetic and not physically imposing at all. Yeah. Um, well, no, they're not physically imposing one-on-one, but once you get a big, like, group of them together, like, if those girls had wanted to, they could have, like, all tackled uh, Cliff and, you know, taken him. <laughs> so, I think the scene was fine, I guess, but it didn't move the needle for me when I was watching it. And I feel like it was supposed to work as, like, a real, like, show set piece. And I'm like, it's alright. I don't really have any, like, beef with it. I don't have Mm. any, like, nitpicks. But I think by the time we even got there, I was already pretty frustrated with what I perceived to be the structural problems in the movie. So I was already kind of on edge. Mm. And I was all... And my attitude was already kind of turning against the film. And I was saying, like, okay, this is cute and fun and amusing, but when are we going to do something? When is any of this going to cohere into a narrative? When are the things that I'm watching going to matter? Mm, okay. Well, I guess they, they just mattered more to me. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I just, I, I connected with the characters so much that I was fine just, I guess, hanging out with them. That That's, again, the thing to stress <laughs> here 
Um, and I do think that's why people are trying to compare this to Jackie Brown. I do think that there is a difference because there is that thread through Jackie Brown of, you know, mm-hmm. how is Jackie going to get out of this and what, you know, how is she going to pull off this, uh, you know, plan to get the money. Um, so like through that, you can hang out with the characters and that feels a little bit more like that. This is like a different kind of hangout movie where it's more like, I'm going to use word here again. I don't know if this is a word that matches elegiac. <laughs> That's a very apt. Okay. I'm throwing out big words that I feel like I should know the meaning to. <laughs> you know what you're talking about. But again, I, but again, I, I connected with just how so much of this film, it, it, it feels like it, it feels like a bunch of little scenes as you, you called them beads. For me, the thread is almost this, it's, it's like this melancholy, bittersweet feeling of this era, this time in movies, this time in Hollywood, this time in America, people look on it fondly. For you know, and sometimes for good reasons, we should also look on it as a time when things got really fucked up, and people really, mm-hmm. you know, someone like Manson could come in, kind of like Trump, maybe today. Yeah. I don't think this is a very political movie. I'm sure maybe someone will read politics into it somehow. Um, I know f- Film Spotting thought it was a very conservative movie. I don't know if I quite so maybe just in the sense that. Oh my God! I don't know these times; they're changing. Oh, get away from me, hippie! Um, <laughs> I, I hope Tarantino doesn't feel that way. I feel like he's kind of not a hippie, but a hipster, so he should relate to hippies. It's funny though. I've after we saw the movie, I both listened to and read several critiques of it, and one theme I kept seeing in the criticisms is that even though Tarantino is. 56 years old now, I mm-hmm. believe. Yes. How he always feels like a young man and a young director. And this is the first... I read several people... It feels like a mature work. This is the first movie that doesn't feel like it was made by a young man and that... Hmm. Interesting. But, you know, but, but it's funny, though, because I, I think he's said many times that when he made Jackie Brown, it was a conscious effort to try to slow things down and not make the audience think like, I'm going to give you something very energetic this time. Like I'm going to try to make, make a more mature work. And a lot of people read into that. Then he turned the other way for a lot of years. And that's why he did kill bill now. So maybe this is, um, I don't know. Yeah. That's interesting point. Maybe because it's very like, just, I don't know what word to use. Maybe it's because it—it's weird. Another another critic I read tried to say that this is the first time that, even though it's about Hollywood, that it feels like Tarantino's made a movie about real people, which Which, it sounds like very paradoxical, doesn't it? Well, my thing was I was this movie kind of stranded me where I didn't feel like it was as naturalistic as something like Jackie Brown which I love, and as you know, is my second favorite Tarantino movie, just a hair below Inglorious Bastards, which is my mm-hmm. favorite. So yeah. I adore Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is awesome. Which which we revisited, by the way. We saw that uh, together at the, a Pam Greer marathon about five or six months ago. Yeah. And it holds up really well. I Jackie think. Brown is also the Tarantino movie I've seen the most. Yeah. I've seen Jackie Brown beginning to end, oh, I don't know, like 12 to 15 times. And then I've seen parts of it. But anyway, a movie like that is, I feel like, a lot more naturalistic. And I feel like... Did you think that some of the interactions that, like, Rick and Cliff have weren't as natural? Like, maybe they were a little bit stiff? Because I didn't feel that. I saw some, a couple of critics say that. But I, I still thought it was the usual kind of good Tarantino directed acting that I usually see. I didn't feel stiffness, but I did feel shallowness to me. Um, I think Rick Dalton is a character with like a certain amount of 
complexity to him. But Cliff Booth actually feels very superficial to me as a character. See, I, I don't think he's superficial. I think he has on the surface a superficial feel, and it's something that he's kind of created and molded, and he's maybe he's naturally that kind of guy. Um, but again, like, I think there's a darkness and a complexity there. It's just maybe we don't get to see it as much as with with Rick. It was, and I guess I wanted their relationship, I don't know, maybe... Maybe you wanted more scenes with them? Yeah, and I wanted maybe their relationship to have more layers, more complexity to it. Hmm. And I also, this goes back to the idea that I would have really liked more characters to have larger roles. Like, I feel like this movie cried out to be, like, a real ensemble piece instead of two leads and a bunch of big you know players. What's, you know what's kind of in- another interesting thing I found out um, after the fact? Originally, Tarantino was writing this as a book. Interesting. Yeah. I and don't he see was, that at all. And he was trying to write as a book for years, apparently, and then he decided, like, oh, I can, maybe I can make, I can actually make this into a screenplay. Could you see this as a book? I could not at all. It ha- I don't know. I think it actually has the, it has some of the details of what you might find, what I might see in a book, possibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, Maybe in a book there would be extra things to look for, like in certain character details and things, but I don't know. I think a lot of his movies have that novelistic quality. That's why, the, you know, they mostly, a lot of them have chapters. This doesn't really have chapters. This is more like slices. Well, maybe. I also told you, I wish this movie was a little talkier, actually. Mm. Uh... See, that might be you being shallow. I mean, there are, I think there's plenty of talk in this movie. It's not to the level of like Hateful Eight and or Death Proof. Those are like wall to wall talking. So I actually, when we were watching this movie, I actually thought to myself a few times, I wish this was more like the Hateful Eight or something, where it was just well, like, with that, well, in that, well, in that case, you have characters who are all learning about each other and. You know, over this night, you're seeing them, like, really not second-guessing each other. Yeah, and I guess in something like The Hateful Eight, even though that's not really, I would say, a highly plot-driven film, there are enough characters doing enough interesting things and wheeling and dealing and undercutting each other, and there's so much going on, I feel like, in that movie. And I feel like this movie is just... um. He, you, he didn't pull off trying to do Hollywood Ulysses. <laughs> Where, you know, like, you know, doing a, a whole life in a day sort of thing. <laughs> I don't need a movie necessarily to be plot-driven. But if it's not plot-driven and it's just a character studying, like, mm-hmm. day-in-the-life vignettes, I wish it had been structured differently. Oh, and I realize I haven't said anything about Margot Robbie as Sharon okay. Tate. I thought that she is, she's such a sweet presence in the movie, and she's very, very, like, heart-tugging, because, of course, the audience is watching her every interaction with the knowledge of what happens to her, so... Well, what happens to her in real life. And what happens to her in real life. And, of course, the scene where she's watching herself on watching her own movie is a standout scene in the film. So I think everything with her is great, but I wish she'd been in the movie more because... See, that I would actually agree with. That's like one... That is something I would take Tarantino task writing-wise, where I was, in a way, I I didn't have so much a problem with... Now, again, I don't think this is his best script exactly. I think... In a way, it's I found actually it better directed than some of his other films, uh, or not even I wouldn't say that. Because, let me let me rephrase that. The directing is so is so great that I could forgive that it didn't have the plot. With Margot Robbie, it would have been nice to maybe have like one scene 
Like, with her and Jay Sebring. Well, yeah, because they have that scene, which I thought was kind of weird. Well, they had that scene where she's at, like, the Playboy Mansion, and Damian Lewis pops up as Steve McQueen, and kind of, like, almost has, like, girl talk with someone about how, like, he's the one that got away because yeah. her type is short men who look like 12 year old boys so when i watched steve mcqueen <laughs> the most appealing man ever so when i watched that scene i was like why am i listening to steve mcqueen monologue about this kind of odd relationship instead of just seeing the odd relationship play out yeah yeah that's an interesting point yeah like have a like to ha maybe have a moment with her and Plansky. now Apparently, I read that Polanski got to... I don't know if he got to read the script. Uh. I mean, this is in real life. I think I read that, like, a friend got of his got to read it and tell him everything that happens in it. I don't know, it's a well, weird Polanski's thing. Well, Polanski's barely in the movie. No, that's the other thing. Like, Polanski has as much screen time as Charles Manson. Um, and granted... For the last third, you know, there, historically there's a reason why Polanski isn't there. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know, have we talked up the movie enough? Should we get into spoilers? Okay, let's go into spoilers. Okay, so for those of you listening, uh, we are going to talk some spoilers uh, now. So if you haven't seen the movie, I mean, we've talked a lot about it, obviously, but there's a pretty big thing that does happen that is a thing that maybe you should go in fresh not knowing so if you haven't seen it and you don't want to be really spoiled, stop here. Show starts in four minutes. To visit our snack bar and treat yourself to some delicious Castleberry's pit-cooked barbecue sandwiches. Cook the Castleberry way slowly over open pits of glowing charcoal, then seasoned with a sauce that's zesty, yet delightfully mild to please the entire family. Also at the snack bar, you'll find popcorn and soft drinks and candy and french fries to go with your Castleberry's barbecue sandwiches. There's plenty of time before the movie starts, so visit our snack bar right now for Castleberry's pit-cooked barbecue sandwiches. Okay, we can continue. Spoilers. Um, spoilers. So, um, yeah, they he pulls another Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. In a, to a degree, um, not quite the same thing. Like, it's a weird thing because when you think about it, with Inglorious Bastards, you know, there was no propaganda film that was being shown where all of the German high command came together with also a theater full of Nazi sympathizers and 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 Emil Jannings, which my mother loves to point out because hi mom, a Blue Angel fan. Um, but in that case, that was so fictionalized it became its own kind of. You could watch it as its own fictionalized event, so anything could happen in it. In this case, the I get I think the idea is that you know it's it, it once after the first two thirds we flash ahead six months. And now this is after Rick Dalton's made four films in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> four films in a year, of course. Um, and he comes home with a, a new Italian wife. Um, and, you know, part of the tension, well, the one little conflict is that now Rick and Rick can't hire Cliff anymore. So their friendship's going to change. Um, but then, of course, the night is August 8th, 1969. So we know... Oh, this is the night. That, I think, is a little different than what he did in Bastards. And I could see why some people might be uneasy about that. Because mm -hmm. that is a more direct alternate history yeah. than what he did with Bastards, where it's just, you know, that's a big comic book. And we can take, there, there are multiple levels to that, you know, for another conversation. I was fine with it, though. I liked it. Yeah. Was it one of your? Was it one of the parts of the movie you liked more than others? The only thing I will say about it is, it it doesn't pay off as much for you as you would have liked because a lot of the rest of the movie made left you flat. Well, it was that. It was by the end of the movie, my goodwill had already been kind of burned off, and also, I kind of 
as I was watching the movie, I thought to myself, I bet he's going to Inglorious Bastards this ending. So, and I'm assuming pretty much, I'm assuming most of the people seeing this movie have seen Inglorious Bastards. What I would say is, I thought he might, but I didn't know how. Mm. If that makes sense. I thought that what might happen is that he, um, that maybe Cliff stop like he fights with maybe one or two of the of the of the the people who go up Cielo Drive to uh the Polanski Tate home, but then they stop Cliff and then they go to the Tate house anyway. Yeah. So I actually didn't think necessarily that Sharon Tate was gonna make it through the end, mm. but. I also my predict my thought going in was okay, he is gonna pull like an alternate history, but not all the way. Mm. If that makes sense, like we would see like them doing shit with Rick or Cliff and or Cliff, because why else? You know, you got you have the, the you have the two houses next to each other for a reason. Yeah. And then what? And then my, my thought was okay, then they're going to deal with. Cliff and Rick, maybe they die, something happens to them, and then they go into the Tate house, but we don't see any of that. Like, I, I had a pretty good, for a short time, like, shallowly, like, months and months, for a while before the movie came out, I thought, oh man, Tarantino's gonna really go to town showing Sharon Tate, like getting stabbed over and over again. Because if you read about it's what horrible. happened, it was so graphic. Like, the number of times they stabbed them, which he could have done that if it was a different kind of movie, maybe. Like, if it wasn't... Because a lot of this movie is, frankly, pretty... Even though I, I mentioned that it's kind of bittersweet, a lot of it's very good-natured, yeah. which is more than... You know, it's very good-natured. Maybe that's what you could compare Jackie Brown in a way. Yeah. How Jackie Brown, it's a, even though it has a lot of villainous characters, it's a very fun, you know, mm. uh, like, cheerful movie. It would have been so brutal, though, because Margot Robbie is such a ray of sunshine, and she's literally, like, dressed in yellow yeah. a lot of the time. But, but you could and... see why he might have, he could have gone that route. Like, it's it must have been difficult for him because he knows, like, the audience has an expectation of what I might do. Mm. Um, not to the same level of, like, an M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm not... So I guess I have to subvert expectations some way. And so what he does is all of the violence is between Cliff and, the guy, and them and also the dog... Those mansion chumps get waxed in a very satisfying fashion. It's very over the top. I will say, like, the audience, I think, were quite into it. And they were, like, I mean, I was taken aback. I feel like I might, one of the reasons I would want to see the movie again is to watch that sequence. Because uh. I feel like some of the violence actually went by so fast. Yeah. That I was only registering, oh, something happened with that can of dog food. <laughs> Um, that person's getting, that person's making the guy who got mauled by the dog in Django look <laughs> like he got off easy. If you see a flamethrower in Act 1. Oh, it, there you go. It Some, must go up. Yeah, Chekhov's flamethrower. Uh, that's a thing too. Um, and I feel like that, but that whole sequence is set up pretty well too because it, it kind of, it, Tarantino's idea is, okay, so... If someone else like Rick or Cliff were living next door, and the Manson family, like their the the car is outside making that noise, Rick would come out and be like, "Get out of here, Dennis Hopper," <laughs> and that was fun too. So yeah, I I actually found was fine with the ending, and I even found it kind of sweet that you know then Rick finally gets to have a moment with uh, Jason Bring and uh, uh, Sharon Tate. Yes. And then, of course, the title comes up, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's very, then suddenly you realize, oh, yeah, we should have been taking this title very literally. Because <laughs> it is a, to follow kind of on the Sergio Leone Once Upon a Time in America format, 
it is very much like a fairy tale of, well, this is a thing that could have happened. Did it? <laughs> no? Well, and... you know, it's, it's, I don't know, I almost kind of, I, I, I'm glad I thought a little bit more on it, because I think it's a way of, I could see, again, I could see why people would be upset about it. But I think that what helps, frankly, in my cases, I didn't grow up with Manson Tate. Charles Manson was always just this guy on TV who I'd seen little brief snippets if I was flipping around channels. And he's in, like, one of those documentaries. And he always pops up on screen with look with the ta- Nazi tattoo in his forehead. Be like, rah, 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 rah. Um, so... Yeah, I actually was cool with uh, how it unfolded. Um, might not have been as great if not for that song. <laughs> like, by the way, uh, you will come on. The soundtrack is pretty great for this. Yeah, movie. well, I said everything about how this movie is packaged on um is excellent. Said it looks amazing. The soundtrack is great. Mm. The set design, the costuming, like said. Everything about, um... It's like getting a pair of leggings in the mail and then, over the course of the day, realizing that they're going to fall apart. (laughs) Sorry, I was trying to find a good metaphor. Yes. For for you, anyway. That literally happened to me when I was at work last week. Yeah. Oh, another thing, too, that... uh, there's, There's actually a lot of good setup and payoff, though, in that opening. Almost kind of ironic, too, because... Um, the, the Margaret Qualley girl, I'm, I'm sorry I'm blanking on the, her character name, she sells Cliff for 50 cents the acid-soaked cigarette. Yeah. And then he puts it away, comes back six months later, oh, hey, this is here. Well, let's do this now. And... And what a night to do it. Yeah, and that was another thing. I thought that was, when he suddenly introduced that, I thought, oh, okay, that's a route he could take. Like, that's why I found the ending so engrossing, because I saw all these different avenues he could take with it, that what if we saw, maybe from Cliff's point of view, a hallucination of what he saw happening, but then the characters just go to the Tate house anyway? But again, I was satisfied with how it turned out. He, I think he was... He, was, he might have been juggling too many balls, but eventually he got them all. One actually, I will say one piece of writing I found a little clunky was how like he threw a lot of narration at us uh-huh. when they come back from Italy. Well, I kind of felt like with the narrator, either do it through the whole movie, through the whole movie, or not at all. Like it felt weird. To- well, he's done that before, to be fair, but in other times when he's had a narrator come up. It actually is serving a purpose for a moment, like when Samuel Jackson narrates in Inglorious Bastards. But in those cases, it's so brief that it's like, okay, this is kind of like a little gimmick. This is fun. In this case, it felt like he was writing narration for a purpose to try to cover some parts up. Yeah, and it's like... You can tell us that Leonardo DiCaprio got married without narration. Or you could just simply show him with the wife and somebody's like, oh, this is... Like, on the airplane, they could have had a bit bit where, like, a stewardess comes over and is like, hi, hi, Rick. Oh, who is this? Oh, this is my new wife. Oh, hi, wife. And then got moved away. But, yeah, it was a little... You know, I like hearing Kurt Russell, you know, he can read the phone book. But, um... Yeah, that was a little like because he appeared. His narration is in a couple other parts, and I thought that those parts were fine. But yeah, the whole chunk when they first come when they come back from Italy, that felt like I need to throw a lot of stuff here to make it work. I said to you that this is a good um movie to have on in the background as you're, like, scrolling through your phone or, like, surfing the net. I'm sh- I I want to mail... I want to send a link to Tarantino for your review, because I'm sure he will have no problem with that <laughs> at all. He would probably have more of a problem with what you just said than someone who said they hated the movie. And because this is the kind of movie which there are... 
several individual scenes I like a lot. Um, mm. I love the Brad Pitt, um, Bruce Lee scene. I love the Leonardo DiCaprio botching his lines, freaking out in the trailer scene. I like the entire, like, ending once the mansion people get to Rick And, House. of course, um, what was the show again? Oh, Bounty Law. Yeah, the show that Rick Dalton was a big hit in the 50s. I loved all the fake material for Bounty Law. And I, I read that he... Tarantino actually wrote full episodes of Bounty Law. Oh, well, what was one of the first things I said to you after... <laughs> they should movie? just have a full episode of Bounty Law on the DVD. I want to watch full episodes of Bounty Law. <laughs> also, the post credit scene in this movie is hilarious, and it should have been in the regular film, where he's advertising for Red Apple yeah, cigarettes. Yeah, it's funny, for the first time, I think Tarantino realized, you know... It's funny that, like, he's he's himself kind of a Rick Dalton in a way because he's seeing, like, the culture around him changing with streaming and all that, and movies might not be in theaters as much anymore. Um, but he also has realized, well, because of Marvel, I should have a post-credit stinger. The post-credit scene is so good. It's so good. Oh, and the other thing, too, as you're exiting after that, the last bit of credits... Um, well, let's just say my favorite, uh, I'm just going to say right here, putting us, well, aside from Twilight Zone and maybe Star Trek, my other favorite show of the sixties, you hear some dialogue from that show. <laughs> I'm not even going to spoil that. You just have to stay through the whole movie. Oh. All right. So, all right. We've been talking about this for a while. Um, well, here's the tough question because to me, I still say I love this movie. I I will freely admit I after nine movies and literally a lifetime of loving this man's work and you know he's just by you know his tenacity and dedication and love of cinema and I feel that coming through this I I will admit in a way maybe I'm giving him a little bit of a pass mm. in some respect but I still think that there's a lot to this movie and i am looking forward to watching it again and i'm glad i saw it in a theater would you recommend for people to see this in a theater i would give this the highest bad rating so you give it like the most positive thumbs down you can think of yeah so like generally speaking i feel like if you use the letterbox five star rating system anything from half a star or zero stars to two and a half stars is like a bad rating, and everything from three stars yeah. to five stars is a good rating. I would give this movie two and a half stars. And you wouldn't say you wouldn't tell people just go see this for DiCaprio and Pitt. See, my problem is there are components of this movie that are so good, but it's so frustrating for me to see them fail to cohere into any type of movie. It's like, I'm seeing, like, pieces of things, shards of things, and I just want him to, like, build the Transformer and make it walk. Is that what happens in those movies? (laughs) (laughs) Sure! Of course that's what happens. Well, On this episode of Things Corey... (laughs) is right but aren't well, no the trans <laughs> don't you know how a transformer works i've actually seen a transformers movie but no they're like a bunch of little cars that are merged together into a big car <laughs> and it's like no <laughs> no <laughs> no they each transform from a car into a robot that's it oh. they don't all form into a mega now what you might be thinking of is unicron oh. who is the planet that goes around eating <laughs> other Transformers and other planets. Okay, so maybe I should oh. make the comparison like Legos. Where okay. this movie is full of like really pretty Legos. And if the Legos were actors, they'd be really good at mm. Lego acting. But I'm like, you've built this Lego well, world and you failed uh, well, to... Well, to, to follow it up more, it's all dressed up with nowhere to go. Yes. And... It's frustrating because you're right, there are so many things about it that I like, and there are 
Ted, you're right. Pitt and DiCaprio are great. And I just wish, but I feel like their performances are just not enough to sustain, like, a two and a half hour movie. And when I hear you talk about, like, isolation and nostalgia and wrestling with irrelevance and things like that, I'm like, yeah, I wish I got more of it, more of that out of this movie instead of just seeing, like, guys shambling around, going from place to place, doing stuff, seemingly in haphazard order. Uh, well... That's just, like, your opinion. I'm sorry, I still love you so much, Gucci. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, Corey. You know, my next movie's gonna be really great, okay? It's gonna be full of things that you like, okay? Oh, should we mention our bet, concluding this? Okay, yeah, so, yeah, I, again, I I don't know if I'd put this as high as Hateful Eight, but it's still, I'd say go see this movie. But, okay, let's move on to the bet. Okay, so, QT has talked... He's talked a good game about retiring after his next film. Yes, that this, what we saw tonight is his penultimate film. He will either retire, he said, but like once he's made his 10th film, or once he reaches the age of 60, whichever comes first. So he turns 60 in March of two, of like a few years from now. We have a bet on this because I've said. There is absolutely no way Tarantino retires after his next film. Now, of course, we. I also had to specify that he's he's tried to wiggle out, uh, like not wiggle out, but he's tried to say, I won't direct films. I'm going to write books. I'm going to write plays. I'm going to do other things. In his pretentious way, he actually used these words. He said, "I'll be a man of letters." <laughs> he, by the way, Tarantino can't spell very well, as <laughs> evidenced by Inglorious Bastards. But anyway, so you actually think he might stick with this and retire from making theatrically released films? Yeah, I think there's no chance of that. I, I think he's such a fetishist. For the only thing he has more of a fetish than feet. <laughs> and by the way, it's the other thing to know as a given. There are a lot of feet in this. Plenty of feet. Lots of feet. Lots of very, and also not always good-looking feet. A lot of them are dirty, hippie feet with gangrene. <laughs> um, but I lost my train of thought. What was We're it? talking about the retirement. Okay, yeah. So I think that he he is very, like, I don't know. Something about him, I get the sense that he really does stick to what he means. So we have a bet on this. And so I actually am trying to say that I do think he will retire because he's such like a stubborn stick in the mud about so many things that he'll also be about this. Because think... you know, he keeps on saying like directing is a young man's game and blah, blah, blah. But you don't think he will. I think there's actually no chance he retires. I think even if he announces a retirement, it's going to oh. be like a Steven Soderbergh yeah. retirement. But the other thing I think that's different, though, than Soderbergh is Soderbergh said he retired and then immediately went off to do the Nick, <laughs> which isn't really retiring. Yeah. You know, so... I, I made two seasons and directed every episode of a show. Um, with Tarantino, he only, he does a movie every three or four years. So that's why it, um, it, it could be tricky because he might, we might not hear from him for a while and, you know, he maybe, maybe could, might come back with something, but uh -huh. it, I don't know. Wouldn't you think though, that he wouldn't want to go through, like, aside from the fact too, that he has enough money that he doesn't have to work again a day in his life. That's the other argument I would say. He's already kind of cheating by counting Kill Bill as one movie. Oh yeah, he did kind of fuck himself with that. I should talk about that for a second. There, he he in interviews, somebody will ask him like, "What about you know? You say you're going to retire once you make ten films. Shouldn't we don't didn't Kill Bill get released as two movies? And then he'll say, technically yes, but I shot it as one movie, and I consider it one movie." Uh, no, you know what? I had to pay two different tickets to see that, to see your movie. And also, I this is very petty, I put Kill Bill 1 on my top 2003 list, and I put Kill Bill 2 on my top 2004 <laughs> list. You can't make me have a thing where I put one film 
on each of those years lists. Well, I'm not going to do it. I'm well, not going to go back. I don't, they feel like two different movies to me. Like, it felt very natural to All break right. them up. So, okay. so what's our bet? So, our bet is, and we're not cashing this in until, like, 2030, but our bet is, if Tarantino really does retire from making theatrically released films after his next movie, you win $50. If... After his next movie, whenever it comes out, he is at least in production with another theatrical film by 2030. I win $50. I think it's a fair bet. Yes. And again, this doesn't involve him doing other works. Like, he could do, like, an HBO miniseries, and that won't count towards this bet. Yeah, our bet only applies to theatrically released films. So, if he acts or writes books, or, like, makes more TV shows, yeah. he still counts God. as retired. God, this is going to be like that episode of Seinfeld. What's it called? <laughs> yes, this is our contest. Yes. All right, so... So, anyway, that's about it for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and I, I'm glad we're doing this bet. I think it makes our marriage stronger. It does. <laughs> Our mar- we needed to do something to survive our disparate opinions on this film. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you were also wrong about Magnolia, so there's still time for you to correct yourself. I was like 14 <laughs> when I saw Magnolia watching at 2 o'clock in the morning. You're so. not still 14? You look so young. <laughs> Are you sure you're not? All right. That makes you a pedo. All right. All right. So, anyway. Um, so, Gabe, I know you like it when we disagree. I know you wanted us to actually disagree on a movie. Um, uh, t- Yes, shout out to our longtime listener, Gabe. We love you, Gabe. All right. So if you have any other thoughts about the movie, Tarantino, feet, um, you can send us an email. I like your feet. Aw, thank you. Wagesofcinema at gmail.com and Facebook and Twitter at The Wage of Cinema. We're also on Instagram, so you can follow when we do stories and stuff. Um, When we come back, we will have a non-Tarantino movie and other movie stuff. Till next time, I'm Jack. I'm Corey. And the wages of cinema is Manson! Hugs. All right, good night.